What is the perfect story? Does it exist? Is there a tangible formula? Has the perfect story ever been told? And if so, are we simply trying to retell this story over and over? This podcast is called The Midnight Myth, and somewhere between the black of night and the break of dawn, there is a story, and it's perfect. My name is Derek Jones. And my name is Laurel Hostack. Welcome to The Midnight Myth. Welcome back to The Midnight Myth, everybody's favorite podcast where we analyze and discuss popular storytelling and how they've been informed and inspired by history, mythology, philosophy. I am very, very excited to be here. We are fresh back from our European vacation where we went to Austria and the Czech Republic. And this is our first episode since we've been back. We missed you guys so much. Yeah, we really did. It is really nice to be back in the studio, back in this chair. It feels a little funny, so we'll uh, we'll settle in and uh, give you some fun uh, fun podcasting today. Yeah, well, you know what? As excited as I am to be here, I don't know how much fun this will be That's from a true. perspective. Yeah. So here's what we're doing, folks. We last year, when Handmaid's Tale season two ended, we did a recap of the season and discussion on the season finale. Handmaid's Tale Season 3 just wrapped up, so we wanted to um, go back to that, talk about this show. I do find it to be one of the most compelling works of art out there in the media world, whether that media is literary, digital, streaming, film, TV, you name it. I think Handmaid's Tale is a unique show in a time with a lot of high-quality entertainment it tends to stick out above and beyond the rest. So we're going to discuss Handmaid's Tale Season 3. In particular, we're going to talk about the finale. So obviously, folks, if you haven't caught up to the Handmaid's Tale Season 3, heavy, heavy spoilers. Yes. We're holding nothing back. Please make sure that you have seen it. Don't allow us to ruin it. And trust me, folks, if you haven't caught up to Handmaid's Tale Watch season three overall, five stars, home run, two thumbs up. It was exceptional. Yes, absolutely agreed. And check out our earlier Handmaid's Tale episodes. I think we have done three prior to this one. One where we talked about uh, the greater genre of dystopia. One where we talked about the religious influences on The Handmaid's Tale. And one where, as you mentioned, we discussed the finale of season two. So yeah, it's wonderful to continue this series and to continue mining this show for the incredible themes and influences we can find in it. Yeah, and as we have hit a point in our own history where America's dominant economic, political, hegemonic empire is in question, it is tremendously valuable to think about what could happen if America fell. Where could we be? What society would we or could we look like? And Handmaid's Tale is a stark reminder 
that uh, freedom and liberty, you can't take them for granted. You don't always have them, and they can be slipped away, and you can find yourself in a theocratic military dictatorship within the blink of an eye. Yes. Uh, While this show, I think, so often serves to remind us of the darkness in human nature and how easily the idea of holding on to power or the threat of our own existence can uh, drive us to do horrible things to one another, it also serves as a reminder of the incredible kindness and goodness that you can find in human beings, even when you least expect it. And I think that the finale of season three, uh, maybe even more than any other installment of The Handmaid's Tale, reminded us of that. So with that going forward, I want to move into what we'll talk about here on the podcast. Before we do, uh, it's been a little while. I'm a little rusty on my uh, follow-us spiel, but this conversation never starts or ends here on the podcast. We want to continue discussing these things with you on and offline. So if you haven't yet, make sure you follow us, especially on Twitter at The Midnight Myth or on Instagram at Midnight Myth Podcast or on Facebook. Uh, you can also head to our website, www.midnightmyth.com for more content, blogs, and to learn more about our sources and our inspiration. Um, while you're at the website, you can learn more about our side podcast, The Wheel of Ka, which is Derek and Steve going through every book in Stephen King's The Dark Tower. They just recorded, and I believe tomorrow we're going to drop the uh, book 4.5, The Wind Through the Keyhole, and that is uh, going to be a really good one. I'm really excited to, to hear what they do next. It's a wonderful podcast, so definitely check that out, and uh, consider purchasing some merchandise from us, if you like. So on that website, midnightmyth.com, there's a link to shop. You can get t-shirts, totes, mugs, whatever floats your boat. Uh, And then lastly, consider supporting us on Patreon. Uh, Also on the website, you'll see that link to our Patreon page. You can support us for as little as a dollar a month or as much as you would like to give. And every level comes with extra perks. Uh, So we'll be getting an extra Patreon bonus episode Uh, to our Patreon supporters soon. And uh, if you want more content, if you can't get enough of The Midnight Myth, that is the best place to go. I would like to just do a special shout out to a podcast that we, Laurel and I, both really love, Verbal Diorama. Um, They just did an amazing episode on The Iron Giant. And uh, just want to send lots of love over to Verbal Diorama. Everyone, if you like The Midnight Myth, you'll like this podcast too. So please check it out and just thank you for all the kind words. Yes, thank you, Em. Uh, It was really amazing to hear that in uh, the Iron Giant podcast. Uh, One of the most uh, sort of serendipitous and perfect things that just happened is we've been publishing our time machine, our back catalog, and we happened to republish our Matrix and 1999 films episode the same week as M published her uh, Matrix episode. So listen to those in tandem. There's a lot you can learn from her. 100%. All right, let us roll up the sleeves. It's time to peel the layers of the onion. Let's get into all things Handmaid's Tale season finale. This, you guys know, it's the story of June of Joseph at this point, the Handmaid's Tale in Gilead, who at the end of season two made the decision not to escape Gilead with her daughter, Nicole, but rather to go back to Gilead until she can find a way to free her daughter. She spends this with her new commander of Joseph, a very odd and interesting character. And in it, it ultimately climaxes where June realizing that she is not going to be able to really rescue her daughter 
decides to try to rescue all of uh, as many children as she can and orchestrates a resistance play with a mass exodus of Martha's and children who ultimately succeed and make their way through a plane into Canada. This is the most simplest of simplest of recaps. But perfect. We go, we see Gilead in D.C., we see uh, the Washington Monument converted into a cross. Yeah, we see uh, the media used for propaganda to try and get Nicole back uh, extradited to uh, Gilead from Canada. We see the fall of Fred and Serena as they get arrested in Canada for war crimes. So satisfying. We see the Lincoln Memorial destroyed. Oh, we God. see Handmaid's Tale with their mouths sewed shut so they can't speak. We get the backstory of Aunt Lydia in this and figure out how did Aunt Lydia become Aunt Lydia. So much to talk about. Yeah, and we see June stab a major commander with a pen and then knock him dead with a statue. Beat him to death. And then get cleaned up by Martha's to Kate Bush. Absolutely. So much things to talk about. Just one general impression that I had of Handmaid Tale Season 3. Maybe you'll agree with me or disagree, if you will. I feel like Handmaid's Tale season three took its uh, visual imagery up a notch when and its visual storytelling up a notch for a show that is known for striking color contrast, striking light, for telling uh, stories just by like pausing on a frame. Yeah. Things that we've talked about before where we've actually tried to break down frame by frame all of the visual storytelling. Handmaid's Tale season three was a treasure trove of Beautiful, compelling, great images. You have June standing in front of a statue of wings, framing her like a um, an like, angel. Like an yeah. angel. When they when they had June looking at the Lincoln Memorial, and it cut to the memorial as being destroyed, I actually wept yeah. at that image. Yeah. Just that image. Just thinking, like, oh my God, America's greatest president, who stood for and fought for the freedom of the slaves, as well as preserved our nation one of the best and most important monuments defaced and destroyed in Gilead really affected me. And there's no words in that scene. Would you agree that it was like an extra level of amazing? It started at amazing and just took it up a notch. I do agree. That particular shot that you're speaking about, uh, it's shocking. And I think a huge part of uh, the reaction that I had was due to the shock. I knew that once uh, the camera panned up or gave us a wider shot. I was going to see something that I didn't want to see, but I didn't expect that. And not only was uh, Lincoln's head destroyed, but the quote uh, above the monument was destroyed as well, because as you know, women in Gilead are not permitted to read words. So the street signs are all numbers. And so that was an extra punch in the gut and just a feeling of total loss and shock. And I think that the Handmaid's Tale has always been deeply uh, intentional and deeply purposeful in its imagery, and that was a great example of that. And one other thing I'd like to put on that before we get to the final, if you're okay with this, this is not something we plan to talk about, but sure, yeah. it's a bit of a boomerang here on the Midnight Myth. We like to shake it up. As empires wax and wane, as regimes rise and fall, it is common to re-monumentalize. And what I mean by that is the... Public displays of art are inherently political objects. They are funded by the state, and they're often a reflection of those in power or their intentions or their wishes. 
Um, a good example, if you're a Roman emperor, you're going to erect statues of yourself all over Rome and all over the empire so everyone knows you are the emperor. Or if you're an Austrian emperor, you're going to erect statues of you looking like Caesar to harken back to that same monumentalization. Exactly. Or if you're an Austrian emperor and you're building your summer palace, you might put Roman ruins yeah. in your summer palace Fake as they Roman did ruins. in the Schönbrunn Palace yeah. in Vienna, which we saw. They did that to hearken to one because it was aesthetically they wanted to recapture the idea of ruins. And two, it is a direct link to the Austrian power, to the Roman power. Yeah. So monumentalizing, it's inherently political and it's inherently symbolic. And when one regime takes a place of another, there's often re-monumentalizing. This happened, for example, the ancient Assyrians were one of the great ancient craftsmen of the, the ancient world. Well, I said ancient twice in a sentence. But anyway, I digress. You're fine. They were so hated that when they were overthrown, almost all ancient Assyrian art was destroyed and all of the outside monumentalizing, all of their monuments were torn down. And when the United States took Baghdad, Baghdad pardon me, in the Iraq war, what's the first thing that happened? The statue of Saddam Hussein was torn down. And in Gilead, we see um, in D.C. a re-monumentalization of that city. We see the Lincoln Memorial destroyed. We see the words removed. And we see the Washington Monument converted into a cross. And it's just a reminder when we have discussions about public art and about monuments currently now, we have to really think through what these monuments mean because they are a lasting legacy of who we are as a people. And does the monument deserve to still be there? Should it be changed? Now, I'm never in favor of destroying art. I don't think we should ever topple statues. But should they be in a public square? Well, when Gilead takes control of D.C., the Washington Monument cannot stand because Washington stood for freedom, and freedom is what the Gilead is trying to suppress so they convert it into a religious symbol. Similarly, uh, you cannot have a statue of Abraham Lincoln who represents America and American freedom and represents equity among racial lines. This does not exist in Gilead. People are not equal, so you have to destroy it. And like you mentioned, you're not allowed to read in public if you're a woman. You're not allowed to read, period. So you can't have words in public, so they remove the quotes. And hence, they've repurposed the most American of American symbols now into Gilead symbols. Yeah, uh, they've left them there in their ruined or their um, uh, transformed state as a reminder that they beat America, that they have destroyed America, but that they have now uh, used the platform that America had to create a stronger empire. That's the message that they're sending. And that's why when they have this big public handmaid's prayer as a piece of propaganda to put pressure on Canada to extradite Nicole, June's daughter, back into Gilead. That's why they chose that spot. Yeah. To say, this is not America. This is now Gilead. We have remade it in Gilead's image. And we're going to make what used to be a celebration of the greatest aspects of American culture through America's greatest heroes has now been repurposed, recontextualized, Gileadized, and now is used as Gilead propaganda to hopefully enslave another girl. Oh, wow. 
Um, we Good did point. not plan to talk about that at all. But yes, I'm sorry. Glad we did. I'm really glad that we did. I think that was a really uh, important thing to address and just shows the uh, the journey that this season took, that that was there in the beginning of the back half of that season. Uh, we, we, we went to D.C. and we saw these important images and how that contributes to how this story uh, ends or at least pauses. Um, let's we, jump into the finale. Yeah, let's jump into the finale. So the final episode... Uh, is June and her network of Marthas attempting to execute their plan of uh, removing 52 children from Gilead. They have secured a plane, and they are working together to try and make the logistics of this work. Uh, And I think the logistics of it were a a fascinating way to spend the beginning of this episode, the lead-up, the nerves, uh, the tiny little details that they have to work out by making these care packages for children, by uh, depositing soap in June's uh, uh, handbag as this sort of symbol of solidarity, but also this very important and very uh, logical thing that they have to do by greasing the gates. Absolutely. And it required all sort of different levels of Gilead's rigid caste system to work in tandem right. in order for this to, to happen. So this doesn't happen if Commander Joseph doesn't decide he wants to help. Right. He is integral to it because he was able to, one, um, when the Waterfords get arrested in Canada and are being held as war criminals, they threaten to shut down the border between Canada and Gilead. It is because of um, Joseph, Commander Joseph, that he keeps the border open. Two, he calls a meeting that draws all of the security away. So that they all have a big job to do. And um, and then just on a very tactile point, three, once all of the children are there, he reads them a story to keep them entertained. Right. So that it's not obvious that there are a bunch of children in there. So the children actually stay quiet, which is really important because if you've got 50 kids in a room, that's going to make some noise. When you need them all to be quiet, what do you do? You pick up a book and read them a story. So he was super important for this. You have all of the handmaids working together with the Marthas to orchestrate where the children will be, to make sure the children have food, to make sure the children have clothing. And uh, you have them communicating through passing soap, through just you know whispers in the stores. And uh, all of the Marthas and all of the handmaids had to work as a unit in order for this plan to, to be successful. It tells you the, the great enterprise that it is to save people from oppression, how hard that is, how many people need to work together and how perfect that plan needs to go. And how mundane so much of that has to be, how you have to spend uh, an incomparable amount of hours uh, devising these plans, uh, putting together these baskets, making sure that you have the right amount of soap so that the gate doesn't squeak, making sure you have a, a symbol in the window that tells people this is where to go but doesn't draw attention to you. All of the tiny, finite little tasks that you have to be attuned to uh, demonstrate the incredible effort that goes into something like this. It's not all heroism. Uh, This kind of segues nicely into some of the research that I did leading up to this because I wanted to talk about the historical influence for what June is attempting to do here, which is kinder transports. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, I didn't mean to step on you there. Uh, So kinder transports. Uh, It's a word you may have heard before with regard to uh, the Second World War. When we talk about kinder transports, most of the time people are referring to the massive effort 
um, sponsored by the British government to get children, predominantly Jewish children, out of Austria, Poland, Nazi Germany, and the Czech, uh, Czechoslovakia before the war. Um, but there were numerous efforts led by individuals and organizations and governments across Europe leading up to the Second World War. Now, the one that I'm most familiar with because of my time living in Prague, and uh, this is an interesting segue with our, um, our recent trip, but I think it's also a really good one to discuss with regard to June because it's on the part of an individual, is this guy, Nicholas Winton. Nicholas Winton was a British stockbroker, and he was not a particularly religious man, but he was of Jewish parentage. Uh, he, when he was 29 years old, planned a ski vacation to Switzerland. This was in 1938. And at the last minute, he got a call from his friend Martin Blake, who was working in Czechoslovakia with Jewish refugees, uh, saying, hey, can you come and lend a hand? Uh, don't bother to bring your skis. So Nicholas Winton changed his plans and went to Czechoslovakia, went to Prague, and firsthand he witnessed the plight of Jewish families and refugees, and he started working with the British government to arrange for the rescue of children. Uh, so this is a stockbroker who just happened to go to Prague, saw this, and said, there's got to be something I can do. There were already kinder transports being arranged in other countries, but there was no effort to get children out of Czechoslovakia, and he said, this is my chance. So Winton secured train and plane transport and safe passage through Holland for the children. He had to bribe governments. He had to do all kinds of petty crime to make this happen, to get documents for all of these children. Uh, and he did it with a plum. It was not fun work. It was tedious work. And he set up an office in his hotel room in Prague and dedicated himself to getting these kids out. Uh, he could only take so many children, but he secured foster homes and passage for 669 Czechoslovak children, mostly Jews. And uh, most of these children were the only members of their family to survive the war. That's, that's heavy. Yeah. Um, when, when you're in Prague, as we just were, there is a wonderful Jewish quarter that is part of the area of the city that was designated where Jews could live during the Middle Ages. Um, Jews living in the Middle Ages in Christian European cities and countries and nations had some quasi-liberty, but their, their general movements were under strict control under the authorities. They could only live in certain areas, they could only worship in certain areas, and they could only follow certain professions. For example, one of the great evil anti-Semitic tropes is that Jewish people are really good with money and they hoard all of the money. One of the reasons this stereotype exists is that one of the few professions open to medieval Jews in Christian Europe was banking. So Jews could only do a few things. One of them was banking, so that's what they did, and then they were hated for it. It's how dehumanization works. You create the conditions by which you then blame the person for those conditions. Right. And in the Jewish quarter, there's an old synagogue that someone painted the names, date of birth, and last known or date of death of every Jew known to have perished in the Holocaust in the Czech Republic. And it's moving. They have someone sitting there very solemnly and quietly reciting the names as you walk through and you see this staunch reminder. And Laurel, you said something really amazing when we walked out of that, and I was very moved by it. You're like, you know, the shame is 
there are virtually no Jews left in the Czech Republic because they were all fucking killed or fled. And the lesson that you get when you see this episode in particular is that dehumanization has a huge cost. That, it, that cost is paid both by the people who have been dehumanized and those doing the dehumanization. We see this when we see in this episode, we see guards abuse young women who have some sort of cognitive or development disability. We see them herded into a truck like their cattle. We see this when June begs a guard to just say, hey, you know, where's my daughter? While this guard who just completely tells her, shut the fuck up, this guard dehumanizes himself through the process of dehumanizing right. these women. The huge cost that it takes on the human soul, that it takes on the collective psyche of a nation or a people. And when you strip freedoms of some, you really dehumanize all in the process. And the thing that I can't help coming back to when I see the Holocaust Memorial and I see a piece of art like the last episode of The Handmaid's Tale, I can't help but think about what the fuck America is doing right now to families seeking asylum and how we have dehumanized them and how we have normalized dehumanization in both the state and how they're treating people seeking asylum in this country as well as the rhetoric being used by the political establishment who seeks to dehumanize, and then how I look at those that have harmed the immigrants as less than humans themselves. I dehumanize myself when I think of how much anger and hatred that I feel towards the political party and the, in particular the president who's orchestrated this dehumanization. I've dehumanized them. And it is just a horrible, terrible, vicious cycle that I think the human, um, in particular, Western society has gone through since its modern age, whether that's in the transatlantic slave trade to the mass extermination of Native Americans to the Holocaust to the building of empires that squashed peoples and nations all over the planet and now in its latest manifestation to immigrant camps at the American-Mexico border. And like the one like solace that I get from this, this episode is that you can do things, right? You can reclaim your humanity. You can save people. And, um, and th though it's, it's terrible because you have to be fucking ruthless in order right. to try to save your humanity when it's been stripped by those in power. Not only can you, but if you are able to, you must. You are obliged to. Um, there's a quote from the Talmud, which is the book of Jewish law, that I think also gained some recognition as the tagline for the Spielberg movie Schindler's List that says, whoever saves one life saves the world entire. It's something you could also easily apply to this man I've been talking about, Nicholas Winton, who engineered this incredible kinder transport of 669 children. The last train that was set to depart in 1939 carried 250 children, and it didn't make it out. Um, the next day, actually, I think the same day, Hitler invaded Poland and the war began, and only two of those children survived the war who had been on that train. 
He wasn't able to get everyone out, uh, but he did save 669 children. Uh, in the 1980s, what Nicholas Winton did actually uh, came to light. He had kept it quiet for about 50 years, and people started uh, understanding what he had done because his wife found a scrapbook with a list of the children uh, in the attic that he had been covering up. There was uh, an episode of a TV talk show called That's Life, where Nicholas Winton was an invited guest and the host told his story, and he was sitting in the front row of the audience. And if you can find it on YouTube, definitely check it out. It's a really moving experience. But the host looks at him and says, oh, the woman sitting to your left, she's one of the children that you saved. Um, and then he looks to his right, and the woman sitting to his right says, I'm actually also one of the children that you saved. And uh, then the host says, does anybody else in this audience owe their life to Nicholas Winton? And 40 or 50 adults stand up and applaud him. And you can see it kind of dawn on this man's eyes that these are the people uh, that he helped bring to adulthood who would not have survived the war otherwise. Um, so if you can find the video, please, please look at it. It's really tremendously powerful. But I bring this up uh, with regard to The Handmaid's Tale because I think a huge thing that this season did, uh, not only in June's recognition that she may not be able to get herself and her child out, she can do something good for humanity, she can do something right, and she has the power to do that, so she must do that. We also this season got the... Uh, kind of horrible choice that she had to make at the hands of uh, Commander Lawrence to pick five Marthas or send them all to the colonies. That was earlier in the season. Uh, and June was wringing her hands about that, and I can imagine anyone in that situation would. You can get yourself caught up into all kinds of moral and ethical philosophical arguments about what is the right thing to do, what is the moral imperative of the situation, and then June chooses. She saves five people, knowing that she's going to send everybody else pretty much to the gallows because whoever saves one life saves the world entire. And she has the opportunity to save five lives. She can't get herself lost in the quagmire of moral philosophy in that moment. She has to save five lives. And that pays off later in the season when June has to defend herself from a rape at the hands of, uh, of a commander and kills him, and a Martha comes in, sees what happens, and says, take the freight elevator, get out, we'll take care of this. I saw you, you saved me. Uh, it's very much like this moment of Nicholas Winton recognizing that he was the one who was able to provide an entire lifetime to so many people and finally, they got to look him in the eye as adults and say, you saved me, and because of that, I cherish you. Because of that, uh, you've saved the entire world. Yeah, and the character June, if uh, I, uh, I watched this YouTube video about how do you build sympathy from an audience to the, the main protagonist, and they say, punish the protagonist. Oh, my God. If there is ever a character in TV more punished than June, I, I don't know of it. God, think about that whole episode where she's being tortured at the hospital. She is isolated and has to watch a woman. Watch her shopping partner. Who is, they're just trying to save the baby as because she's just the vessel for the baby. And she has to just sit there 24-7 
and just pray by her side. And June almost completely breaks. They then they do this in season two as well. They almost break June. She gets stripped down to nothing. And the lesson that Aunt Lydia wants to teach her is humility. The lesson that she wants to teach her and Aunt Lydia wants to break her is who is really in control here because of your, um, you you had all of the handmaids take a stand against this one handmaid. You caused this. She wants her to feel shame. And June goes back and decides that she's going to sit there and watch her shopping partner die. And it has the reverse effect. It instead... It, it gives June the inspiration to be like, you know what? I did something wrong to this woman. Yes, this is true. I had all the handmaids turn against her and had a hand in her death in one, in a certain respect. However, I know what I need to do next. And that is save as many people as I can. And in this, we see June's motivations turn away from just saving her daughter or saving herself or saving Nicole To her, it is saving as many as she can. If it can't be her daughter, it can someone else's daughter is suffering. Yeah. Someone else's son is suffering under this horrible regime. Save as many lives as you can. And she successfully saves 50 plus lives and nearly dies herself in the process. Yeah. Absolutely. We are like, this is a heavy episode, guys. We're like shaking back tears as we talk about this stuff. Um, I guess it's a little too late for the content warning. (laughs) Yeah, we'll put one on the... We'll put one on the episode. I'd like to talk, I'd like to pivot a little if you'll permit me. Yeah, please. I'd like to talk a little bit about the story of Exodus. The reason I'd like to talk about the story of Exodus... Um, one, June quotes from the Old Testament about the story of Exodus yeah. at the very end of the episode. And two, the story of Exodus is very much, uh, a, I'm sorry, this final season finale is very much a parallel to the story of Exodus Absolutely. in a lot of ways. So if you're not familiar with the story of Exodus, folks, it's the story of Moses leading the Jews out of Egypt. Um, that's the story of how he found the, found the Ten Commandments. He, it's the story of leading the ancient Hebrew from Egypt to the land of milk and honey or into Israel as we now know it and forming Judea, the ancient state of the Israels. Now, the story of Exodus is a really interesting story. Um, if, I recommend everybody read the actual Bible and get the whole gist of it. Um, there's debate about how historically accurate it is or is not. There is a small camp of historians who argue that there were no ancient Hebrews in ancient Egypt, but that is largely discredited. There is lots of evidence that the Hebrews were in Egypt, um, but it's debated whether or not they were enslaved because the ancient Egyptians were not known for taking slaves. What the ancient Egyptians were known for was Uh, how their society revolved around the Nile. The Nile River would flood on a regular schedule. So it would flood, it would leave soil-rich, mineral-rich soil, rather. And the ancient Egyptians, the commoners, would farm. Half of the year they would farm. The other half of the year, what would they do? They'd monumentalize. They would build for the pharaoh. Now, around about the 13th century before the Common Era BCE, for whatever reason and nobody knows, Almost every ancient civilization collapsed or fell into ruin. 
This is true of the archaic Greece before the classical era. This is true of all of the ancient Near East. There was one society that did not collapse, and that was Egypt. And there was a mass migration of what the ancient Egyptian sources called the Sea Peoples. These were people that came to Egypt because of Egypt's regular flow of the Nile and because that they were always able to feed themselves, their society stayed intact while so many other ancient societies collapsed and disappeared. The standing theory is that this had to do with trends in um, weather and that it was harder to make food in these other areas of the world, but no one really knows if that's true. That's just the best guess that we can come up with, we meaning we ancient historians. Right. So the ancient Hebrew likely came at that time. This is during the New Kingdom of ancient Egypt. This is during the reign of Ramses the Great, who is mentioned in the Bible as the pharaoh um, who sought after the ancient Hebrews when Moses led them out. Now, the ancient Hebrew society was pastoral. So what does that mean? That means that they had sheep and they had animals, and that was their way of life. The Egyptians were welcoming of the sea peoples, but they had to Egyptianize meaning they had to take place in the farming, they had to help build and monumentalize. To the ancient Hebrew, which was a pastoral society, to an ancient Hebrew who was used to worshiping their own gods, now having to worship the Pharaoh as a living god, this must have felt akin to slavery. So the standard theory is that the ancient Hebrews, they came to Egypt, they had to Egyptianize, and they didn't fucking like it at all. And to them, it felt like they were being enslaved while their way of life had to get integrated into the ancient Egyptian culture. Right, which is its own form of oppression. Yes. And, um, I mean, and, you know, it's how it is. If you want to go and you want to live under the Pharaoh, you got to do what the Pharaoh says. You don't have rights in the ancient world, right? Nobody has rights. That didn't even, it was still a thousand years before a constitution was ever written. Sure. Right? Yeah. In ancient Greece. So people had to do what the kings said, period. Well, this doesn't fly. So the ancient Egyptians under Moses, they got led out of Egypt and they ended up finding, founding Israel. The story of Exodus is powerful. It's still celebrated today by uh, the descendants of the ancient Hebrews in the Jewish faith and the, the festival of Passover. And it's also been one of the most inspiring and enduring narratives around leading people out of oppression. It's a narrative that people revisit as part of liberation theology, which we found in South America. It's a narrative that uh, people fighting oppression all over the world have grappled onto because ultimately it's a story about a people defining who they are and leading themselves to their own land, to their own country where they could be themselves. Yeah, absolutely. And that we see in this story as well, in The Handmaid's Tale. So a few interesting, fun parallels. Part of the story of Exodus is that um, the ancient Hebrews had a contract with Yahweh, with one God. Now, it's a misunderstanding to think that during this time, the ancient Hebrews were monotheistic. They weren't. There's no evidence of it. They were actually a polytheistic people at this point. Oh, that's very interesting. Absolutely. Well, think about it like this. And now I got all of almost all of this history from an ancient history professor of mine who also happened to be a Jewish man who was also happened to be a rabbi. But he said this, and it makes perfect sense. Why have thou shalt not have any other gods before me unless you admit that there are other gods? 
You don't need that if there's only one. Right, yeah. You only have that because there are other gods and you admit that. Now, this is the foundation that led the ancient Hebrews to become the first monotheistic religion part of me. They did become that. But at this time, it's very unlikely that they were. This was the starting point that led them to it. That's amazing. So they have a contract with one God, Yahweh, who will lead them to freedom. Now, in the ancient world, if you wanted favor from a particular God, you worship that God, you sacrifice to that God, and that God is expected to return that favor. It's a very, in other words, material relationship. The gods live on this world, they live in this plane, and they will intercede on your behalf if you give them your prayers. Right. So they do this, the ancient Hebrews, and in order, there's several plagues that go about um, the Egyptians because they, Ramses will not allow the Hebrews to leave. One of them is that he kills the firstborn son. Yeah. And in doing so, the ancient Hebrews are instructed to put lamb's blood on their door. Well, what's one of the symbolisms that we see? How do they notify everyone that this is the house that they should meet? They put a red light in the window. Yeah, in the uh, Lawrence household, yeah. To me, that's very much like the lamb's blood. It's a red symbol to say, this is the place, these are the people, this is the starting point of leading us out into the world. So I really like that. Other, you know, just interesting symbolism that has a very Old Testament feel. When they get to the airplane, there is a guard there. There are two guards, actually, and they're armed to the teeth. And there's this obstacle blocking them from crossing the threshold to the plane. Well, when we have the story of Exodus, one, Ramsey's army is chasing them. So there's an army out there looking for them, security forces looking for our heroine and all the children, very much reminiscent of that. And two, once they get to this obstacle, these guards, June decides that she's going to sacrifice herself. Moses never makes it to the promised land. Right. He dies in the story of Exodus, on the way to forming Israel. So June is not going to make it out either because she stands in for the Moses in this, uh, in this sort of interpretation of the episode. Two, once she's in the way, once she sees the guards are in the way, she picks up a stone and starts to throw the stone. In the ancient world, stoning was a common punishment that someone had to endure if they had committed a crime. And what happens? They stone one of the guards to death. Another just very powerful Old Testament image. It's also an interesting callback to, I believe, a season one or season two episode when the uh, handmaids refuse to stone one of their own and drop the stone saying, I'm sorry, Aunt Lydia. Absolutely. And then ultimately, June's leadership, she's able to get them to usher them across the threshold and get them to the plane and ultimately lead these, these children to salvation to a land that flows with milk and honey, right. where she herself is left behind. And, uh, and interestingly enough, one thing that I picked up on the second time watching this, there is the character Janine, and Janine is with June, and she's with the children trying to help them to the plane. Janine has the opportunity to leave on this plane, but doesn't. She goes and gets other handmaids to come and rescue June, who's sitting there after a gunshot wound. And I thought that that's a really interesting uh, decision to make. In order to have Janine choose to rally the other handmaids to save June to make sure that she lives, I thought was also kind of beautiful. 
I do too. Uh, and Janine is a character who I think, uh, so I love the book, The Handmaid's Tale. I think it's one of my favorite books and I highly recommend it if you haven't read it yet. But since it doesn't cover as much ground, it ends exactly where season one of The Handmaid's Tale ends. We get to spend so much more time with these characters. And I think one of the characters who has flourished the most because of that treatment is Janine. I think she is given this incredible inner life and we learn so much about her through uh, spending a little bit more time with her. And her journey uh, very much parallels June on this uh, you know, odyssey from being self-interested to selfless. Uh, June is clearly less self-interested, I think, than Janine to begin with, but her journey is toward uh, you know, letting go of ego and uh, helping others and putting others before herself. And for Janine to take that journey as well, for someone whose worldview has always been very, oh God, pun intended, not no, no pun intended, myopic, um, for her to stick her neck out for someone who has already done so much for her, who has given so much to her, uh, was a really amazing way to watch that character grow. Absolutely. Totally. Very, very cool. Um, other things I want to point out. So we talked a little bit about Exodus. I want to talk about, can we talk about the soap? Yeah, let's talk Are about the cool soap. Are you cool with that? So I thought the soap, the first time around I was like, what's up with the soap? Yeah. The second time I'm like, I'm really thinking about it. Like everything is intentional here. Nothing is by accident. So the soap, it, it has two pragmatic functions. One, the soap that all of the handmaids are dropping into June's bag. It's like a symbol of solidarity. We're with you. The yeah. plan's going on. Absolutely. Everything's in motion. Here's a bar of soap. As a way that they can pass information that's very functional, very utilitarian. Two, she boils the soap into a gel and she puts it on the gate so that the gate doesn't squeak. So every time that a Martha with a child enters the gate, there isn't a noise. So that's the very, that's the utility of the soap. When you think about it from, you're in a writing room and you're writing this episode. Why have a squeaky gate at all? What, like you don't need to have that. There's got to right. be more to the soap. And I have a few theories and ideas of it. When we see the soap, we see June chopping it up and we see her boiling it. That really reminiscence has a reminiscent vibe of a witch making a brew under a cauldron, yeah, yeah. right? And she's in there and she's cooking it and she's stirring it. But it's not in a evil sense. It's soap. It's cleansing. It's the thing that you use to heal a wound if it's dirty. It's the thing you use to wash your body. It's the thing that you use to clean your house. Soap is purifying. So it's like taking this sort of witchy cauldron, but with a pure symbol rather than an evil symbol. She's not making a potion. She's making soap. That uh, The soap, and then in that scene, I think it's also interesting that she's having a conversation with another Martha and inspires that Martha to have a bit of a backbone to fight back when um, Joseph comes in and says, hey, can you uh, fix Iron this shirt? shirt yeah. And she's like, no, I'm too fucking busy. Fuck off, essentially is what she says. So it has this cleansing property for that Martha, who then also helps June think of the plan to lead the kids through the woods when all yeah. the roads are shut down. Yeah. So it has this sort of cleansing, witchy covenant. And empowering. This idea of this like pagan witch imagery that's being used, but not in a way to demonize women, but to uplift women. Yeah, a feminine archetype that has uh, a, a negative connotation throughout uh, storytelling history, but also has uh, this great power to be uh, edifying for 
uh, for women. Absolutely. So it serves a useful function for the plan. So that's why it's there. But it also has, I view, a, a deeper symbolic function yeah. as well. And I think that's really interesting and really brilliant writing, in my view. I think that's wonderful. Definitely. I thought that was really cool. Um, what else you got? Um, so other than that, I have just a few things that I picked up on this season, some interesting artistic references that I think are worth calling out, uh, not least of which is that the Lawrence household is full of famous and important art. Uh, the one piece that we uh, constantly have uh, in our view because the characters spend so much time in that kitchen is a painting by Johannes Vermeer called The Milkmaid. Uh, it's a striking image because uh, it definitely resembles a Martha. The subject of it looks exactly, is dressed like a Martha, and you can imagine that Joseph Lawrence, who was the architect of Gilead's economy, might have said, why don't we put Martha's in a uniform like this? Or somehow that might have influenced it. But the cinematographers for The Handmaid's Tale have also referenced Vermeer uh, many times in how they developed the signature look of Gilead, which is uh, a place that is flooded with natural light, uh, a place where there is uh, intense focus on domestic tasks, uh, which again comes back in this episode where the domestic tasks serve not only a purpose to provide food for the family, but also uh, to provide this daring escape for all of these people. Uh, so I think it's a really interesting visual reference for us to get and to have over our shoulders this season. It also calls out the incredible incredible work that Marthas have done this season and every season. They're kind of in the shadows. Nobody really looks at them the way they look at handmaids or wives, but the Marthas are the network that have made this possible. They're the ones who provided the muffins that made June say, we are going to need a bigger boat. Uh, they're the ones who helped Nicole get out last season, and they're the ones who joined and helped throw rocks and cleaned up June's mess when she killed the commander. Uh, so it, it's an incredible testament, I think, to what Martha's are doing. And you know, that's can I just ex extrapolate on that a little bit? Yeah, please. It's a, it's very much because the Marthas are in charge of the household, so they need to get things for their commanders yeah. and for their homes. And because they need to get things, they need to network. And because they need to network, they need to know where supplies are. And because they need to know where supplies are, they need to know where people are. And because they're all smart, intelligent, and capable women, they're like, fuck this system. We're going to use this network to do other things like get children out and get people out and get supplies to people that need it. And I think that is really awesome that you can build this oppressive and terrible and horrible society. And out of the function of serving that society, out comes the resistance network. Absolutely. They fly so under the radar because they're not put into these uh, brightly colored uniforms and they're not defined by their childbearing ability, uh, but they're the ones who get closest to children. They are the ones who often get closest to the commanders and their wives. So they have this unique ability uh, to access people. I mean, a fucking Martha kills the commander and the commander's wife to yeah, save a child. to save the baby. Bad ass. Ruthless. So, uh, yeah, I just wanted to mention that Vermeer painting that hangs in the Lawrence household. The other artistic reference that I want to call out from this episode in particular is the story that uh, Joe Lawrence is reading to the children as they're preparing to take off is from Treasure Island uh, by Robert Louis Stevenson. And I think it's an interesting uh, choice to have him reading that because for two seasons we've had this character of Joe Lawrence who is a deeply ambiguous character. He 
exhibits these ruthless traits. He makes June make this awful decision where he's sending Marthas to the colonies. Uh, he does terrible things. He is the one responsible for much of Gilead's infrastructure. And yet he also shows great uh, compassion and generosity and great tenderness with his wife. He refuses to rape June when he is called upon to do so, to perform a ceremony under witness, and only does so when June offers consent. Uh, he uh, clearly, he's been getting people out and he offers uh, so much of this assistance uh, and seems to have come to terms with the fact that he has done a bad thing and wants to, to find a way to atone for it. And I think the, the parallel in Treasure Island is Long John Silver, uh, who is a larger-than-life character within that narrative, but he's a deeply ambiguous character as well. He's clearly a villain, he's a pirate, he's after treasure, and yet his relationship with Jim Hawkins, the main character, the protagonist of Treasure Island, is one of tenderness and fatherhood and sensitivity and kindness. And so I think we're seeing just a, a, a light reference to that ambiguity of character, that people aren't always all good or all bad, even people who do, uh, who, who are the architects of horrible regimes. Uh, and this isn't to excuse any of Joseph's war crimes, but it does serve uh, to uh, offer this comment on redemption. I'm glad that you brought that up because I'd like to, there's something else I'd like to talk about too in this episode and I want to pose a few questions at you. So okay. the big theme that comes, you know, screaming out of this episode is ruthlessness. Yes. June talks about, you know, to the hardest heart, to the victory goes to the hardest heart. And where does ruthlessness come from? And we see June act ruthlessly in this. And we see her almost, you know, have to shoot people in the back. Yeah. Um, she does, you know, murder a few guards. She pulls a gun on a 10-year-old girl. Absolutely. And she uses force to take the home from the commander. Yeah. When he tries to shut it down, she's holding a gun being like, you think this is your house? Get me a fucking map. Yep. And he realizes that he is very much now uh, under June's control. So the question I have for you, and I want to ask it through the eyes of character. So I want to ask the question, can the ruthless be redeemed? And is it possible for someone who accesses a deep reservoir of ruthlessness to accomplish a task, which means in tangible terms, I will do what needs to be done to get this task and I don't care what I have to do. Someone who actually touches that ruthlessness and acts on it, can they be redeemed? And the way I want to filter this, if you'll permit me, is I want to mention a few characters and I want you, if you can, and I'm putting you on the spot here, tell me, do you think this character was redeemed at, at all in season three? Oh boy. Yes or no right. and why? This is going to be tough. I'm going to start with, I don't know if these are going to be easy or not, but I'm going to start with ones that I think are easy. First character for you, Nick. Whoa, I actually think this is a really tough one because we didn't get any Nick in the back half of the season. He was uh, removed from the show on a very ambiguous note. Um, so I am going to say no. All right, um, hit me with the why. Well, we don't know the full details yet, but we can imply uh, from the uh, the way that Nick exited the show this season and the respect that other Gileadian fighters have for him and the fact that he is headed to uh, Chicago to take out the resistance, uh, that 
he truly does, or at least at one point did believe in Gilead. And I think it's very possible that he was one of the original fighters uh, who helped transform the U.S. into Gilead. Um, and so I think we are learning things about Nick that we didn't know. I don't necessarily want to say that there's no chance he could be redeemed because he has done good things, especially for June um, and for the resistance. But I think at this point, we're painting a, a darker picture than we had thought in season one. Yeah, definitely. And we're just talking season three, right? Yeah. And the last image we see of Nick is him walking with a bunch of soldiers all saluting him. His resolve to go out and kill for Gilead is absolute. He does not join the resistance. He has the opportunity to help join the resistance and to help June. And he chooses to fight for Gilead. No redemption in season three for Nick, in my view. Yep. yep. All right, let's Great. get it a little. I, I thought he'd be an easier one because it, it clearly says no redemption in my view. Yeah. Um, then if you disagree with us out there, internet, tell us why. Let's get a little more complex here. Serena. Serena. Um, okay, so at the end of season two, we talked about how Serena um, was inching toward redemption but was not yet redeemed. I believe that with the turning in of, uh, of her husband, she has gotten closer and closer, but she still continues to uh, claim that everything that she did was under duress, and she has not yet confronted the fact that she has been instrumental in uh, the most horrible things that have happened to so many people. And so I'm going to say she is still not re redeemed, inching closer and closer. Yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go a little further than you. That character in my eyes is irredeemable. Okay, great. A hundred percent. I don't want to see redemption. She helped build this world of Gilead. I mean, she backslid like crazy this season. I had so much sympathy for her at the start of it, and then she just completely backslid. At the end of the day, people with privilege are going to defend their privilege Absolutely. more than the rights of the under, under unprivileged. Yeah. So she helps save Nicole because she realized that she doesn't want Nicole to be unfree. And then as soon as she thinks, wait a minute, maybe I made a mistake and I really just want this baby back. She does everything in her power to try to get Nicole back. And she completely is protecting her privilege irredeemable man she is in it for herself i love it I love and it. I, I am very happy that she is not going to get a complete pass when it comes to the international courts all right let's go let's go next here let's talk about lydia not redeemed never redeemed okay i yeah uh, now that we've seen some of her backstory no yeah. more sympathy for her i i have always had a small well of sympathy just at least for the way that ann dowd plays lydia it's a tremendous performance and she is a remarkable actor and i think her character has been just beautifully drawn and the backstory was incredible uh, we learned so much about her and i i do care about lydia but lydia is one of the most insidious and uh, terrifying characters on the show. I completely agree with you. I kind of pressed you to see if maybe I could get a crack there, but I mean, to me, asking if Lydia can be redeemed is like asking if someone who ran a concentration camp, concentration camp yeah. for the Nazis can be redeemed. Absolutely. Absolutely not. Irredeemable. I, I love how compelling she's written. I love that they do have areas where that you can be sympathetic towards Lydia, yeah. but... At the end of the day, there's no redemption there yeah. whatsoever. 
All right, let's uh, go for the $50,000 question here. June touches some dark places in this season. Yeah. She does some dark things. Most of those dark things are to help people. But she has killed people. She pulled a gun on a 10-year-old child. She's done some ruthless things. She stabs a man to death. Granted, who's trying to rape her with a pen and then murders him with a statue. We see June really go to darker places than we've ever seen. Has she been redeemed by season three? And let's temper this. We don't know where it's going, but just by the evidence of season three, is there redemption for June? Yes, there is. Uh, I think that uh, no one gets out of Gilead without some blood on their hands. We've seen a similar journey with Emily, who has actually gotten out, but only after doing some horrible things. And uh, she feels at the end of it, once she's reached Canada, like she's a different person. She's been changed by what Gilead made her do. And the fact of Gilead's oppression doesn't absolve uh, personal responsibility for the things that June or Emily have done uh, in the name of getting out or in the name of self-preservation. Those things do need to be reckoned with and those things do need to be recognized as a part of those characters because not everyone reacts the same way in the same situation. Um, but at the end of the day, June is moving toward, I think this, uh, and I think may have actually closed this arc uh, to a certain extent, but she's moving toward martyrdom. Um, and this character has proven with growing intensity that she can place others above herself. And the dark places that she touches are scary. The people that she hurts, uh, it, it, it scares me to watch that happen but it's in the name of this higher um, calling. And I think that um, she won't go forward without confronting or uh, recognizing these things, and she's already recognizing her own ruthlessness, um, but I, I do believe that June is a savior, if yep. that makes any sense. Yeah, it totally does. I am very inclined to agree with you. While on a certain level... You do have to ask yourself, in order to do a good thing, if you must become a monster, uh, have you, did you pay the right price? And, and should you, or rather, should you become a monster in order to accomplish great works of good? And it's a very complex question, and one that the show, especially in the finale, in the theme of ruthlessness, it, it asks. It asks of June. Now, June recognized there was a line, and that line was shooting a Martha in the back. Well, who was trying to escape, who just panicked. That line was when the child came up trying to silence the child by pointing a gun in the face. She walked up to the line of the truly monstrous and she didn't cross. Yep. And she knows. And she regretted it. And she knows that she crossed a line just by pointing the gun at the child. But when the commander, when Joseph tries to shut it down and says it's too risky, she now knows where that line is. And threatening Joseph is not across that line. Right. And we all in these great and terrible circumstances have to know where that line, that, that line is. And June knows where that line is now. She doesn't cross it. Yes, she has to touch some dark places. Yes, she has to do things that she otherwise would not do. Um, like shoot a soldier, um, you know, pretending to be dead and shooting a shoulder, shoulder, soldier, pardon me, in the eye. 
which is what she does, which is interesting symbolism. She shoots an eye in the eye. Yeah. Um, but she has to do these things in order to save these kids. 100% absolutely. But she doesn't cross the line of irredeemable. You know, it's interesting that you brought up Emily. I mean, Emily does poison a woman in cold blood. Yeah. That's a little more irredeemable to me. It, and it's vengeance. It, it, it's, it's vengeance, uh, symbolic vengeance against an entire class of people. Because while that wife who's in the colonies may not have uh, personally victimized her, she represents a class of people that has victimized her. And that's a little more cold-blooded. That's a little yeah, harder sure. for me to swallow for that character um, than it is, you know what, I've got to threaten my commander. I've got to... Uh, shoot an eye in the eye. I've got to do ruthless, terrible things. I've got to bully and intimidate um, people in order to fall in line. I've got to yell. But she does, she displays all of the things that any great leader needs to do, which is to act in the moment, act decisively, and be able to make the tough decisions. So I think, yes, she is still absolutely redeemable. And in fact, I don't think she did anything that you wouldn't want your hero to do in similar circumstances. Absolutely. Um, just, uh, you know, we're here at the end of this conversation, or at least the tail end of it, and I wanted to uh, focus a little bit on what happens to June at the very end of this, which is uh, as she's carried off by uh, Janine and a handful of other handmaids. Oh, I, I had one more I wanted to ask, too. Oh, yeah, yeah, Is yeah. that okay? Go ahead. Joseph. Oh, yeah. So I touched on this briefly about the ambiguity of this character. I do believe he is more redeemed than not, although he falters a little bit in this finale uh, and tries to shut down and pull the plug on this plan. He eventually facilitates the escape of these children, and it has uh, there's nothing that he will get out of it. You know, he has no personal gain uh, to hope for, and in fact, he's probably way worse off at the end of this season than he would have been uh, had he not facilitated this. Totally um, agree. So uh, although this character has has done awful things and has done good things and has often landed somewhere in the gray area, um, I tip my hat to him and I, I admire this person very much. It's one of the great lessons of the show that no one's really truly evil and nor is anyone really truly good. Mm -hmm. And Joseph is a complex, interesting character, one who directly benefits from the oppression of Gilead, but one who also seeks to save people from the oppression that he helped create. And it's very complex. It's not easy to understand. He's not an easy character to get your mind around, but there is at least a few kernels of redeemableness to Joseph. And the best thing he does in this episode is stop standing in the way. The best thing he does is step aside so that the women can take charge and do what they need to do to get these kids out. And I think a huge part of this, which I discussed a lot in our, our last Handmaid's Tale episode, is that the success of these characters, the success in bringing down Gilead is going to be because of women. And it's going to be because of women from all different social classes and socioeconomic backgrounds and races uh, to come together and support one another and help each other fight this oppression, that men are not going to save us in this situation. So the best thing that Joe Lawrence does is get the fuck out of the way and find them a map. Yep, awesome. All right, that is all I got. What you got there? So as we're seeing June be carried away, uh, 
in this just beautiful shot where she is, uh, you know, facing upward and the handmaids are carrying her by her cloak. Um, it's a very, uh, it's, it's a very Christian image. Uh, we get the sort of sense of Moses being pulled from the river as a baby as she's reciting the milk and honey speech, or we get this sense of Christ being carried down from the cross. Um, or the angels carrying the martyrs to heaven. Absolutely. But one of the things I just want to focus on a question going into next season is June was shot in the back as she was running and the wound uh, appears to be in her abdomen and she's holding her wound, uh, her, her low belly. And I think this is an interesting development for next season because presumably her, her womb is damaged. Uh, it seems like next season she won't be able to be a handmaid again. So I'm very curious where the show is going to take this character if uh, you know she does survive into the next season. Uh, what will happen to this character when she is no longer seen as useful to Gilead's horrible structure that only places value in women who are fertile? Yeah, I mean, the fallout of... I mean, we see the fallout of one child leaving Gilead. Yeah. Like, shake Gilead to its very knees. The idea of 50-some children escaping and June being the main architect of that, and uh, Joseph being a, an accomplice in that, and June maybe no longer being able to have babies. The one thing that has helped June escape, you know, like going to the colonies and just becoming a work slave. Is that she's fertile. Is that she can, yeah, yeah, give birth. If that's taken away from her, who knows? I. But the one thing I will say, I have full confidence in the writers of this show. Yeah, I do too. Uh, and I'm grateful that this show exists. I'm grateful for the questions that it asks and for the answers that it gives when it can. Um, it, like I said at the beginning, often makes you feel very down on where we're at and very down on human nature. But it's episodes like this that show how uh, kindness and goodness can really shine through when people work together and care about each other and find empathy and compassion. Yeah, but... At the end of the day, you got to be fucking ruthless to get shit done in this world. Whew. And until next time, guys, be kind. Be kind. Mm-hmm.